Um, good afternoon. My name is Ann Ackerson. I'm the director of the Museum Association of New York. And my partner today is Laura Roberts, uh, who is um, neither Joan nor Barry. <laughs> well, actually, I do want to introduce neither Joan nor Barry, but I do want to introduce Joan Baldwin, who's sitting here in the audience, <laughs> who is the author of the white paper uh, that we uh, published earlier this year called Report to the Field, the Status of Succession Planning in New York State Museums. And that's what I'm going to talk a little bit about. Um, well, I'm going to talk completely about it. <laughs> um, and then turn it over to Laura, who... Um, Laura is going to be doing some um, additional work for the Museum Association of New York on succession planning. We are um, putting together a succession planning 101 uh, workshop um, that will be delivered this fall uh, by um, via the web, and um, we're, Joan is compiling a succession resource toolkit that will reside on our website and that will be debuted uh, later this fall. Um, we uh, will at the same time be debuting um, a listserv uh, for museum succession issues, all types of succession issues um, that we hope that um, you'll take advantage of too, to share information. And um, we really look forward to unveiling these things over the course of the next three months or so. So. Um, what I thought I would like to do um, today is to set the stage for our session by sharing with you some of the findings from our, our recent report. And let me first say that um, what we discovered about this unmentionable topic, because indeed it seems to be unmentionable in many quarters, is probably what we'd find if we conducted this research in any other state. Uh, across the country. So, um, in other words, I think succession planning obviously is a major issue for museums and heritage organizations and everywhere, not just in New York State. But it isn't on many people's radar screens except for yours. So, we embarked upon a succession planning as a research topic because of these reasons. Firstly was the much reported um, much reported um, articles about uh, baby boomers and the retirement wave that's hitting the nonprofit sector right now and will continue for the next 15 years or so, um, taking with it talent and expertise that's um, difficult, if not, if not impossible, to immediately replace. And by the way, our polling was telling us that some institutions would sustain up to 100% turnover uh, of their staffs within the next. 15 years. Um, the second reason was that our, our own polling, and we do polling primarily of our, our member institutions, um, our own polling said that 91% of museums and heritage organizations in New York State had no plan for talent succession. So perhaps that sounds familiar um, to you. Um, so the disconnect to us was clear. Um, I'd like to ask you if uh, your institutions, how many of your institutions have succession plans in place? Raise your hand. So we've got two. Okay. Um, or really any plans for identifying leadership needs? Okay, we've got one of those. Uh, two of those. Okay, good. This then led us to ask why to embark on a year's worth of research to answer the question. So you have in your hands 
this report. And um, it is a distillation of our findings from an online survey that we conducted and from six focus groups uh, that we held across New York State uh, that represented groups of trustees, directors, department heads, emerging professionals, where we asked how much folks knew about succession planning and whether or not they felt it was important for them personally as well as for their institution. And at this point, I just want to say, Joan, if you want to jump in with any salient remarks, please feel free to do so. Um, in our last two focus groups, we also asked about the importance of institutional memory uh, to succession planning and who, who are the change agents in their institution when it comes to succession planning. We also provided survey respondents and focus group participants with a working definition of succession planning. So here's ours. Um, well, let me just say one more thing. While, we, while um, we most often think of succession planning as a process for choosing a new director or uh, a board president, uh, we broadened out the typical definition um, from the executive to encompass what you can find on page four, which is, quote, a broad spectrum of strategies that build overall capacity, organizational capacity, by stimulating self-assessment, evaluation, personal and organizational development, and continuity for board, staff, and the executive director, end quote. So it really is, in many ways, much about talent planning um, as it is about transition planning. It's uh, stretching to accommodate nurturing, mentoring, and investing in staff with the understanding that a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, and this, um, just by way of an aside, is, is the definition I, th um, I think that the AASLH um, intends to move forward with, um, with a succession planning task force that is already in place and beginning to work, of which um, that uh, Laura's on the task force and I'm on the task force, and Barry Dressel's on the task force, too. So, um, so we're really broadening that concept of succession out. Um, let me see. So among the report's findings are three overarching revelations, the first being that succession planning is almost universally not well understood. Secondly, that an affinity, even an openness for the concept of succession planning has a great deal to do with where a person is in their career. And, you know, if, for example, if you're thinking about retirement, then perhaps you're at that high end of the trajectory where you're, you're really thinking about who's going to succeed you. Whereas if you're just beginning or at the midpoint of your career, succession planning really is not your issue. There are lots of other things that you're concerned about. And thirdly, that since the likelihood of adding succession planning to an already lengthy to-do list is uh, probably not going to happen, it needs to be integrated seamlessly into the organization's strategic planning and culture as well as into the culture of our field. So let me just hit some of the highlights uh, from our findings. And the first is that succession planning, or the lack of it, doesn't have anything to do with the size of your institution, your budget, or even if you have an HR department. However, access to training is often budget-driven. 
therefore leaving smaller institutions without the monetary resources to help their staffs grow their skills and expand their responsibilities. It leaves us to answer the question of how to do this on limited or non-existent budgets. Um, and, and certainly the, the issues of mentoring and coaching and shadowing may be part of the answer to that. Another thing we learned was that trustees see succession or the cultivation of leadership as part of their role, and many see it tied to strategic planning. That's what we found in our focus groups. Directors most often saw succession planning as another layer of work. There was widespread concern that talking about your own succession is akin to talking about your demise. It's too ghoulish. Some don't want to tip their hand, obviously, and risk being considered a lame duck, or e eased out of the institution. Participants drew a sharp line between attending conferences and attending focused and individualized training opportunities. And this notion of individual institutional memory, which I, I mentioned earlier, uh, turns out to be, as we suspected, a double-edged sword. It was seen uh, that way by more department heads and emerging museum professionals than by directors who focused almost exclusively on the practicality of creating, quote unquote, the record, the um, croak book, as one director called it. Um, it hinders creativity. Knowing history is important, but 15 years later, is it a good thing? That was a common kind of refrain we heard in the focus groups about institutional memory. Answers were mixed as to whether institutions value their personnel. Value was me measured in perquisites and compensation. Department heads and emerging museum professionals noted that there was little time for nurturing, especially in the small organization. Directors agreed with this. It's a, it's a systemic problem that a few museum staff, including their directors, are trained to deal with. Directors generally agreed that few nurture them. In fact, a quote in the report is, if, you wanna, if you're a director and you want to be nurtured, get a dog. <laughs> <clears throat> so I, I have to say, we really hit, we really hit a, some chords and some raw edges out there um, when we talk to folks about this in, in some depth. Um, and... Um, Commitment to talent building um, really is about building a bench of skills. It's not simply about taking the, the top department heads or the presumptive um, next director, if it's an in-house pick, and building their skills, but it's really, it's really going deep into the organization and, and being the rising tide that lifts all boats. Um, on page 12, the last paragraph, I think, sums it up here, um, that museum leadership and governance in the 21st century are complex, too complex to assume good leadership just happens, and attracting and retaining good leaders is a concern for all of our museums, not just those of us in New York State. And it's a, an important, succession planning is an important counterpoint to, to leadership and requires partnership between management and staff and an openness about professional needs and desires. In fact, um, 
one director was emphatic that it really is inc incumbent upon everyone in an every employee in an institution to make it known what their needs are, their developmental needs, their, um, in terms of uh, growing their skills. And to be, to be a staff person and to be quiet and not mention those is to, um, to be a person who, who could eas easily be overlooked. So the other piece of information that we learned in terms of tips for smooth transition and leadership is to embrace the pivotal moment that transition provides. Um, and there's been much work done by the Annie E. Casey Foundation in, in Maryland. They've written some wonderful monographs um, <clears throat> on this and really sort of the seminal uh, work, I think, uh, that talks about this notion of pause, pivot, and thrive, that when the, an institution's going through that kind of a transition, more often than not, I think there's a, a knee-jerk reaction to, you know, our executive is leaving or we've got department heads leaving or even the board president. And we just must fill the gap, fill the void. And I think a lot of institutions fail to really take that pause, um, which can allow them to sort of rethink their leadership needs and where the institution is and what it needs from its next generation of leaders and to really thrive. So establishing a strategic vision that takes into consideration human resource and leadership needs is, is important uh, to comprehensive strategic planning and a strong human resource component. Um, and and that's, that was a revelation, I think, in one of the focus groups um, where when people were saying, you know, talent planning, succession planning, it's one more layer of planning, can't we integrate it into strategic planning? And the light bulbs kind of went on around the table and said, you know, far too often I think our strategic plans really do focus on, pro on the project. And um, that human resource piece is such a um, critical element to making our plans successful that perhaps we need to pay more attention um, to human resources in the plan and get at strategic planning or get at succession planning that way. Um, I think for the moment I'm going to stop and um, ask Laura to take over the podium um, for this next bit. And um, if you have any questions about this particular report, happy to try and answer them. Um, it is downloadable from our website, so feel free to share it with others. And we're delighted that the American Association for State and Local History wants to continue to think about succession planning in a really serious kind of way and to hopefully take some of the work that we've already started in New York and begin to nationalize that. So you'll be hearing more from ASLH about that in the coming months. Um, and, and I, for one, am just terrifically excited about the prospects of what can happen. So. so maybe we'll leave questions, specific questions about the report until after I'm done. So some of you may have been in the room two years ago in Phoenix um, where we announced with much hoopla and energy that ASLH was undertaking the succession planning effort and we talked about it then and then we didn't get the IMLS grant so we kind of regrouped um, and there's a new committee, a bigger committee to think about it and, and as Anne said, um, the committee looked at, at, at the Manny report and said this is a 
more robust and interesting way to look at it than what we had been thinking about before. So I'll talk about what we'd been thinking about before in context, but not, but not right away. Um, so it has taken me, and I was supposed to be the project director on that project when we didn't get funded. Um, so it has taken me a little while, in fact, to be truthful until a couple of days ago when Anne asked me to fill in for Barry, um, to really sort this out in my own head. So, and, and the Annie Casey Foundation has helped a lot in, in my sorting out process. So I've given you um, five of the charts out of one of the Annie E. Casey publications. Um, the last one, I'm going to start with the last one, um, which is the Learn More About Succession Planning Bibliography. Unfortunately, so far as I can tell, as of last week, um, this, is, this is drawn from monograph number six. So far as I could tell, only two of the monographs are up on the NE Casey Foundation website, which is too bad. And I assumed they would be there forever, so I didn't clip them all. Um, but they are wonderful guides. That, those are the things that are listed as executive transition monographs. I'm not completely sure of the relationship between the Annie E. Casey Foundation and transitionguides.org, which is a training organization and, and consulting organization that got set up in part to push forward the learnings of the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Um, but you'll see the last, the very last thing in that um, bibliography is transitionguides.com, and I'm going to talk more about them in a second. But let me sort of lay out a, um, the topography that I've helped to, that helps me make sense of, of this. So the first is, is what um, is known as an emergency plan. Um, not quite just a croak book, but what do you do when the CEO um, or the board chair or any key leadership position turns over? Um, and I, you really need to think of this as risk management, as reducing your vulnerability in the time of risk. Um, think about it as a disaster plan for people, thinking about it as a will, a last will and testament. Um, and, um, and what happens when you produce this document, which is much easier to produce, because this isn't about people, this is about risk management, right? So it's really easy, comparatively easy, to have these conversations compared to the other conversations. So two things happen when you have this conversation. The first is that you actually do address a need. You get the work done and you've got a tangible plan in case something does happen. But the second thing is that it starts the difficult conversations. It starts the conversations about who do we have? Who is trained? Um, what's documented? Um, what do we need to think about? Do we have the skills that we need to move forward? Um, and, and so without raising the question of, oh, by the way, I'm planning to retire in the next five years, um, you can already start the question of whether or not the organization has the capacity to move forward. Um, Casey suggests that doing a good emergency transition plan takes about 10 or 12 hours. It's not an enormous undertaking. And there is a template for it um, on the Compass Point website, and that's also on that bibliography. There is a publication you can buy from Transition Guides to guide you through the creating of a template. But the, through the creating of a plan, but the compass point template is free. Um, then you have another question, which is, do you keep it secret? Um, 
and uh, and I, and I we do actually have we we're not making stuff up, but we are in fact keeping the identity of organizations anonymous when we give you examples. Um, uh, so Anne, with one exception, I do have one point where I can talk about specifics. So Anne told me that there's an organization that absolutely positively has very long-term, very successful executive director, which every year he and the board revise the emergency succession plan in which they name the person who would step in um, should something terrible happen without any warning. And that name is kept secret. We wondered to each other whether that per the individual knows that he or she has been tapped to be, to, and we hope so. We, we desperately hope so. She's, maybe we'll ask before we do this presentation again. Um, so there's the keeping it secret thing. Now, why would you keep it secret? You would keep it secret because you have all these other VPs who would be ticked off that they're not the designated hitter, right? And you don't want to sow resentment. So that's one possibility. The other possibility, if your management style is a little more transparent, is to not have it be secret and actually have a fire drill. You know, one morning you walk in and, <laughs> and you're told, executive director's not coming in today. Where's the plan? What do we do? Can we keep functioning? Um, I think it's a very intriguing idea. Um, so that's... So that, those, that's one set of choices. Um, and, and you can think about an executive, uh, an emergency plan in one of two ways. Um, one is the, the croak book, the oh my God, he or she's just not here. And it doesn't have to be deaf, you know, it could be something else. Um, and then the other is an emergency plan, which is the 60, 30 to 60 day. You know, and for an executive director to give 30 days notice or two weeks notice would be pretty remarkable, and you really would have to regroup pretty fast um, from normal resignation. So that's an emergency plan. The next category is the second page, which is known as the departure-defined succession plan. When a field is sort of new and evolving, whoever writes the books gets to coin the terminology. So this is all Annie E. Casey terminology. The departure-defined succession plan. Um, and we know of a couple of organizations, and you probably do too, who have had pretty orderly departure-defined succession plans, um, most notably um, the New York Hall of Science when Alan Friedman um, retired, and some of you may have heard about that at the AAM conference. Charlie Bryan has retired from the uh, Virginia Historical Society. He's here with his designated successor. It was a very carefully planned succession. He gave them years' notice. Um, uh, when um, Tom, the late Tom Levitt took over for Clem Silvestro at the National Heritage Museum, he was hired in a year before Clem's retirement um, to apprentice to Clem for a year. I don't think it happened the way they intended. Um, Marilyn may know, but I got a posting maybe about nine months ago for a museum director at Mystic Seaport with the assumption, and it said that that person would become the CEO. Since I recently got a different job description for the CEO of Mystic Seaport, I suspect it didn't work out the way they planned. Um, and, and, and when you're doing this departure-defined succession plan, this is, you know, you've got to be able to, to take the leap and say, I'm out of here soon, and we have to talk about it. Um, in some cases, um, the executive director may be, um, there may be a triggering event that allows the director to raise it comfortably. Um, he or she's partner may have retired, and 
you know, it's very clear. I'm not hanging around much longer. You know, um, as Jane Nylander said about Richard, I'm not going to go fishing forever, alone, forever. I want to see Richard retire pretty soon after I retire. In fact, they work for the same organization, made that a little bit easier. Um, it, uh, in, in Charlie Bryan's case, um, he knew that his health would not allow him to continue in the position much longer. Um, uh, it could be um, something like, um, I, uh, I, don't, I know that the capital campaign is going to start in three years, and it's going to take five years, and I'm not here for eight years. Thank you very much. Um, and I can't imagine leaving in the middle of a capital campaign. So nice in an orderly way, I will get you up to the capital campaign, and we'll hire somebody new in to do the capital campaign. And you certainly see that. Um, so, um, uh, so the advice is, in general, to not just walk into your board president's office one day and say, by the way, I'm thinking about retiring, um, but to do it in context, to do it in the context of an annual review, of a sort of regular check-in of how are we doing, um, or, as Ann said, in the course of strategic planning, of saying, um, I think this is time to raise this question. Um, and Terry Davis has done that with ASLH. She has said, I have been here for 15 years, some enormous number of years. And by the way, at my 20th anniversary, I'm leaving. Um, so she has already told the ASLH board that they can, that the plan that they write in 29, 2009 is going to be the last plan that she will see the implementation of in a very orderly way. Um, belief for her. Um, I mean, I truly believe it. I mean, it's really a very, a very strong thing for her to say. But when you do a departure defined succession plan, you have to think about this current CEO's legacy and the trade-off, as Ann said, between continuity and the opportunity for change. And I've got to tell you, I was at the National Heritage Museum right before Clem and Tom orchestrated this one-year apprenticeship, and I was appalled. If, I ever, if there was ever a place that I thought needed a pivot and a change, it was National Heritage. And the idea that Clem was going to control the future by anointing Tom and training him filled me with dread. Um, I will say that Tom was a terrific new CEO and did change the organization, and it did not perpetuate bad habits. Um, so you, you don't have to be as fearful of it um, as, as you might. Um, but, um, but it is a moment where do you, you need to make that decision. Um, it, this is all particularly difficult, particularly difficult if you're dealing with a founding director or a very long-term director. Um, the Seward, we discussed, we were chatting last night with the director of the Seward House, um, Peter Wisby, who replaced a director who had been in his position for 44 zero years. I can't even imagine having the conversation about succession planning with a, a, somebody who's been in a job for 40 years. Um, but it's also extremely difficult with founding directors. Just as it's extremely difficult to follow a founding director, it's extremely difficult to talk to a founding director about giving up. Um, so it may involve identifying and grooming the next successor, but that's not necessary. It's not necessary. You could, and, and if you look at this checklist, it doesn't say find the next person. It just says do it in an orderly way and link it to your strategic plan. So, but then the question is, what if the, the departure is a very needed opportunity for change and you don't want continuity? That you really say, okay, fine. 
finally. Good thing. Um, it may offend the CEO, but you, as a, the board, may in fact have to say to the CEO, you know what? Our plan for your departure is pause, pivot, and thrive. Um, we're not going to fill the position right away. We're certainly not going to fill it while you're still here. Um, we are going to plan for an interim director. We're going to plan for that pause. Um, it helps if you know of um, organizations where that's commonplace, and that's commonplace in some churches. Um, and it's also somewhat, what's commonplace, it seems, in universities is very long um, notice periods as opposed to interims. And that, in fact, was what ASLH was planning to do. ASLH was planning to train a cadre of interim CEOs, mostly retired CEOs, um, who could do this. Um, and that's what the IMLS really didn't like. Um, you can get trained, if any of you are consultants and interested in this, you can get trained in being an interim CEO in the pause, pivot, and thrive model by transition guides. They run training programs. Sometimes, and it's, it's as, as this generational turnover looms, it could be a great second career um, if you're somewhat uh, um, mobile. Pat just finished being an interim director. She said to me uh, this morning that she'd happily do it again. Um, you may or may not be the change agent. Uh, the transition guides model is that two jobs have to be done. They can be done by the same person or they could be done by two different people. So there's the person who settles everything down um, and cl cleans up the act um, and, work, and could work closely with someone who is more of an assessor and a, um, the, really the bad guy. But it's to get the organization stabilized, let's be honest, to clean house if necessary, make the tough decisions so that the new executive director, the new CEO, doesn't have to come in and spend the first six months cleaning up after the old CEO. Um, it also really helps an organization that has not done strategic planning to take the moment to say, okay, really what are we about? I remember hearing many years ago of a historic house museum who had three finalists for their CEO job, a historic house person, a subject area person, and a historic preservationist. And those were their top three candidates, and they brought in the top three candidates and picked the one they liked the best. And it occurred to me, how crazy is that? Because they didn't figure out whether what they were about was subject area or historic house museum or historic preservation first. They let the strengths of the candidates figure out the direction the organization was going and it made no sense to me. In fact, it was not a particularly successful executive director. Um, so it gives the CEO a, new, a, a stronger institution. The third thing is what Anne was talking about, and which is probably the most relevant to most of you in the room if you're not CEOs or board members. And that is not an actual document, not a this is our succession plan, let's go copy it, but a way of thinking, um, a leadership development plan for all levels, including the board. A leadership development plan that includes what are you documenting, who are you cross-training, um, what skills do you need? What leadership um, uh, capacities are you building in? Um, and um, I think there isn't really 
um, a good document in this handout about that. Um, uh, but it is about a way of thinking um, and a way of running the organization. It means that you've got to have a shared vision. It doesn't work if, any, if everybody doesn't feel as if the vision is the work of everybody in the institution. It means investing in the team more than yourself, and you'll see the, in one of the first things in the succession readiness checklist, do you have a strong team? Um, it means that as a CEO has to realize that he or she can't be indispensable. Um, uh, when Ann, and, Ann did this presentation uh, in Massachusetts, and I don't know whose idea this was, it was just sitting in my notes, that two questions ought to be asked at every performance review. I, as, my, as your boss, ought to say to you, where do you see yourself in five to ten years? But you should say to me, where do you see me in five to ten years? And get both answers to those questions. Um, as, with any, as with any plan, there are very few rules. It can be anything. But you do need to understand that your explicit or implicit policies represent choices. And those choices have consequences and they have implications. They have implications for your budget, implications for your training, implications for your supervision, implications for how you hire, and they have implications about who you're going to be able to hire. Let me talk about some options. So I know of one institution, I just ran into the CEO in the exhibit hall and I said, can I name it? And the CEO said, I'd rather you not. Um, I, I know of one institution who under the prior CEO and I know this because I interviewed for the job. The explicit strategy was we can't afford to have people stay for a long time and get raises, so our personnel strategy is frequent turnover. We pay people badly, and we know that we will lose them after two or three years. That is not the current CEO's strategy. The current CEO has kept that institution's staff for between 10 and 20 years. Well, why would you have this strategy? You may tell yourself it's cheap. If you don't count in the cost of transition and retraining, you could, con you could convince yourself it's cheap. You could convince yourself that it's a way of keeping your staff fresh. And in fact, that's true. And if in fact you're the kind of institution, if you're a children's museum with a huge floor staff that has lots and lots of en en entry level jobs, and you can't possibly provide a career pathway, for all of those people in entry-level jobs. You say, you know what, I'm not going to worry about them. Historic, outdoor living history villages. You know, I'm sure half of this conference started their career being an interpreter in an outdoor living history village. And we couldn't all become directors of interpretation at the villages that we worked at. It just couldn't happen, right? So you have to treat, in some organizations, you have to treat some category of employees as, as disposable. I mean, it sounds really awful. I realize I'm being taped. But the reality is that you think of them as being disposable. Another strategy is to grow your own talent. Um, and we would all love to work for an institution that grows your own talent. It, it, it gets you a continuity of organizational culture. Um, you might, in fact, say in the long run it's cheaper because you don't lose um, the, the uh, expertise as it walks out the door periodically. I think it makes you more competitive in the labor market because you develop a good reputation. You're the kind of place that takes care of their staff. People see that staff move up and you become a, an attractive employer. And I think you become an attractive employer for entry-level positions 
because people say, I'll get my foot in the door and I know that there'll be a future there. I have a former student who just took a job a little bit below what she is capable of at Winterthur because she, fe she was convinced that, Winterthur, that she in fact had that opportunity to move up. Whereas I've never been promoted in an institution in my life. Um, the other way that you, the other reason that you might want to have a strategy for growing your own talent is if you need very specialized skills so that you can assure the continuity of those specialized skills. Again, if you're running an outdoor living history museum and you need, oh, Coopers and Thatchers and people who, who, um, No, this was ox drivers, ox drovers, ox drovers, <laughs> ox drovers. You need to you need to keep your you need to grow your own talent because you're not going to find it out of Cooperstown. Um, there's a third strategy. The third strategy is to have a policy of always looking for the best. And if any of you have been involved in academic searches, um, in some universities, every tenure review involves the process of saying, okay, this candidate is strong, good publications good citizen, cited a lot, all of those things we look for, and simultaneously, is this the best person in the nation for this position right now? And it's, it's a, because after all, you're giving someone tenure. You're hiring them for the rest of their lives. And so you want to make sure that you're hiring excellence. So um, that, that strategy of always looking for the best, if you have a very competitive position, a very highly sought after position, if you are hiring to be the chief curator of antiquities at the Met, you know, you probably are going to look for the best because there's, it's, you know, the top position in the field. Um, it also is, is a way of avoiding risk. Because if it is a highly desirable position, you want to make sure that you're not making a bad choice. And so by explicitly looking at the best people in the field, that in, in, a, in turn is a, risk, um, is a risk management strategy. The fourth thing is to say, the fourth approach is to say, um, we need to invest in change. Um, and here I'll give you another example where I'm willing to name the institution. I think it reflects on them well. Uh, there's an organization in New England called the Trustees of Reservations. They own um, a whole lot of historic houses, but they mainly own acreage. They mainly um, uh, protect open space. And they were doing a strategic plan where they could see that the organization was moving towards much more of a customer focus. And it wasn't about the land management. It was about the experience at the properties. Um, and they stopped planning. They sort of realized, oh my God, we're about to completely change the culture of this organization. Who do we have working for us? We don't have a bunch of people who spent their time being interpreters at outdoor living history museums and know how to engage the public. We have groundskeepers. And we're going to change the organizational culture and change our expectations of success. And so they stopped planning quietly, stopped talking about it, and instituted staff development and trained the staff for what they wanted to be so that when they announced that this was what they wanted to be, the staff felt confident about being that staff. So that's a fourth strategy, which is to in fact use staff development as, a part, as part and parcel of your strategy of organizational change. 
So those are the three kinds of things that we are beginning to define as being the complex of, of succession planning, far wider than either the Croke book um, or just the interim director model. Um, but encouraging organizations, um, and, and by the way, very, very important to not just think about this at the staff level, but to think about it at the board level as well. To invest in cross-training, to invest in people having broad exposure within the institution, um, uh, with, with boards to always make sure that you've got co-chairmen of your committees so that you're not so dependent on, on a single indiv individual, a single volunteer. Um, to give people the opportunity to move around an institution. I will tell um, one quick story, and I will keep this institution nameless because it doesn't bear very well on it, um, but um, I was familiar with an institution where the business manager um, was an older man and who did make it very clear that he was about, he was going to retire. The point, you know, he's basically, I hit 68 or 70, whatever it was, I'm out of here. He probably started saying that at 65. We had in the institution, there was in the institution, a registrar, a very long standing, she'd been there for about eight or nine or ten years, who kept talking about going to business school. Every time you sort of got into a conversation about what were we thinking about with grad school, da 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 da, someone would say, you know what, I'm really thinking about business school. Here was a loyal employee an employee who had been with the institution actually since it was created, was not a very old institution, was going, yeah, I'm thinking about business school. And here was a, a longtime staff member in a completely different department, but we know what registrars are like, who was saying, yeah, you know, I'm going to retire. No one ever put those two things together. No one ever said to her, okay, are you going to go to business school? If you want to go to business school, we'll help you go to business school at night. And when he retires, you're going to stay on as our administrative director. Never even occurred to anybody, to no one in that institution, to marry those two problems together. And what we're talking about is having the kind of mindset where you see those opportunities and you at least explore them and see whether or not they may, in fact, keep the assets that we have in our institutions with us. Because we tend to think about our physical assets, about our collections, but in truth, we, in some cases, we have more invested in our human assets. So um, we, we, our, Anne and I's intent was to open up as many cans of worms as we could um, so that we could have a conversation of, and, and at, at, talk about your questions and issues um, and to let Anne and Joan answer questions about um, the Manny survey. Thank you. Thank you. So we'd like to hear from you all now. <laughs> What's running through your heads regarding succession planning? Uh, I think things must be running through your heads. Yes, because you wouldn't be here. Um, and so we're a, we're a land trust and a conservation. 
interpreting a 1792 site and then a, a current sustainable farm. I'm coming in as the chair of the board, particularly because our 20-year executive director is retiring in one year. And so we're teamed up as board chair and president to go through a year of transition. And this has been actually in the works for three years. And one of the things his first announcement triggered was our, and the board, evaluating all the other staff members and realizing that we had a senior vice president who was completely unacceptable to even the role that he was currently filling. So that was a dramatic situation for us because we had never before as a board identified a second level staff leadership issue that we then sort of forced to have addressed. The forcing of that was a good thing on both sides because we were able to hire somebody to work with his personal outplacement, give them six months of counseling, plus an additional three months of outplacement salary. And they were actually placed before they actually left us. Identified the lack of real professional development among the three other staff members who needed to rise up. And now they've all come up to be department heads and then put in place a process where they will get an opportunity to be reviewed as potential CEO, and then you know, we'll, we'll open it up to the general um, recruitment as well. One of the things that's happened in that, which is puzzling over now, because I'll be leading, not only leading this process for the board, but also leading the search team, is that in the process, the organization itself has come Mm -hmm. We've actually taken it to the next level. We're engaged in a huge project of reprotecting the view shed, refiling all the easements in the view shed, getting new ones, playing a much more active and purposeful role in the community, connecting up with the National Children's Museum, the National Harbor, da 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 da. Suddenly, we're playing actually at a much different level than we were three years ago. So I'm beginning to think the CEO search is going to be very different than what I had even anticipated working through this process. So stay tuned. <laughs> and, and are you worried that you have misled those three VPs? Um, no, we've been pretty careful about that. Do you think they I'm see worried about it. Do you think that they see that, that it's a significantly different organization and they are less likely to be equal to the task than they might have been? And I'm prompted to ask what sort of discussion the board and perhaps the senior staff need to have together uh, in terms of talking about this new organization and its leadership needs going forward. It seems to me that that discussion needs to happen. It's that important. Or a series of discussions. Just by saying this out loud is helpful for me. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I do think that discussion needs to happen. The other piece of that is that because we're a cooperating entity with the National Park Service, we exist inside the National Park along with two other groups. I think we need to do a broader community stakeholder conversation. Mm -hmm which I had raised with the board, and that makes them nervous. Our board is like, well, I don't know if I want to talk to those people at the Alice Ferguson Foundation, because they're trying to tell us what to do. 
So maybe it's better to have your conversation first, get some, get a little, perhaps on some firmer ground yourself so that you can go into those stakeholder com conversations with some sense of perhaps where, where you want to head, where you think you might want to head. Other comments? Questions? Yes, Carol. Uh, I think that, that all of this is so needed. Uh, and it's just, it just, I'm, you know, my hat's off to you for, for what you're doing. Um, but just to be devil's advocate a little bit, mm -hmm. what about the, the, the upstart, young generation, creative thinker, out of the box, you know, you know, to some degree, you know, someone who's leaving a position or a, a, a a board that's been in an organization for a while, it's you know, it's kind of it's kind of seen that in a way that they've they always seen it, and maybe that's fine, you know. But how do you balance that against bringing in somebody or, or just letting it change? I mean, you kind of mm -hmm. suggested this a little bit more in your, your scenarios, but just just someone just to shake it up, just a, just a fresh beginning, just a. You know, is that a bad thing? I mean, they wouldn't have the the corporate yeah. knowledge, they wouldn't have the the history, they wouldn't have you know, but. How do you balance that? How do you decide where to? And I think I, you know, I, I think it's a it's a really important point. And when I I got to tell you when I left National Heritage, and you know, I, I thought that's what it needed, you know. Um, and it turned out that Tom Levitt did shake it up. wasn't young, wasn't a, you know a fresh face, but he did shake it up. Um, and I think that Marilyn does search, and, and I'm sure you've had these conversations with boards. Um, Pat does search. Um, I I think that it it that it has to come from a willingness of the board, you know, to, to, to entertain those kinds of notions um, and, and to be shaken up. Um, and unfortunately, I think most CEOs try and leave an organization, you know, would be sad to think that they were followed by a shake-up artist. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I think, too, that there's... Uh there's a distance between saying, yeah, yeah, let's shake it up, and actually, shaking it up. yeah, shaking it up, and being able to ride that out. And I think that uh, a great lack of will can, <laughs> can happen. And um, you've got to have somehow bring to coalescence that board who is, who is willing to say, yeah, this is shaking up can entail this, this, and this. How far are we willing to, to go before we say we have to pull the plug or, or whatever? And, so. uh, yeah. Joan has an opportunity. Oh, yeah, Maybe Joan. I just wanted to chime in on what Laura said that one of the things that we heard, particularly from the Gen Xers, is um, how frankly irritating they were when they would apply for a search that said you need a minimum of five years' experience. And they came in with all the energy in the world seven or eight years of experience in their graduate degree, and they would lose the job to someone 10 to 15 to 20 years older than they, that they felt would keep the organization absolutely status quo, where they see themselves as the change agents. And one of the things that they said is, why can't boards, and I think that speaks to someone's point, a board that really knows itself and knows what it wants, not the person it wants, Needs, then is perhaps more willing to say, yeah, I'll take that 
Marilyn. Yes, I mean, as you're saying, I do searches. I want to comment on a few things. First of all, institutions go through different phases of their evolution, and they may have had a, a director that brought all kinds of changes, and now you know what they need is consolidation. And another organization may have been you know too much the same and need change. But there's a balance, and you want to match the candidates. Whether I mean, Laura's mentioning the subject areas that bothered her that there was someone in historic preservation, someone in content, someone in historic houses. That may not matter. If you define it as I'm looking for leadership, I'm looking mm -hmm. for a change agent, or I'm looking for mostly a caretaker, which will bring us gradually forward. You know, they're looking for a lot of. Uh, if you define well what you're looking for and what your organization needs um, at that stage in its history, then you, you're more likely to match that criteria with what you get. And absolutely, some organizations, some people may perceive as needing change, but board really are hiring a director um, and it isn't always a young person who's going to bring change I mean mm -hmm. maybe it's just people's nature some people are more you know kind of instigators change makers mm -hmm. and they'll come and they'll say look what I like to do is I go into an organization and I make these changes and I'm not going to stay that long or another you know, people define themselves and you can define them by what they've done how much of a change agent they are and what level they work at um, so it has to, it has to fit. Um, secondly, I'm a little, I wanted to comment on, you said that you've got these, you're developing three vice presidents and they're gonna be able to compete and then it's almost like, well, if that doesn't work out, we'll do an outside search. And in my opinion, it's better to do an open search that includes in-house candidates all at the same time. Yes, because, no, oh, you are gonna yes. do that, okay, because yes. Sorry. Yeah, because it's advantageous to have in-house candidate or candidate because it sets the bar high. Right. And but you you don't know you wouldn't know what you were going to get. You know that might be better if you didn't do that. So that's good. Uh, so th those are a few comments. But I I certainly think that the director of the board needs to define. You know. Uh, if they're doing a capital campaign and that's a big thing, well, you need maybe a little different person than if you're going to go into all kinds of historic preservation because you're, you have 20 years of deferred maintenance and what you're going to need is someone to uh, you know, make all these improvements on the building. Or they're, you know, they've just done that and now they want to turn to programming spaces that are all pristine. So it's more figuring out what stage your organization is at, what you believe, you know, what's going to be important. Which that pause. The, the pausing part can yes. help well, the, an organization yeah, yeah, do. If you've had a director for 40 years and you bring in a new person right away, the statistics are just terrible. They're, they're not going to be, you know, Mrs. Founder, and they're probably going to fail. So then, you know, an interim director might be good. If you've had um, a reasonably short-term but successful director and the place is fairly healthy, I mean, you may be able to move right into the next director. You know, there's so many mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, mm -hmm. sitting behind you is a very successful, extremely successful director who moved up following Kate Fiennes, who followed him, you know, was the deputy director and got promoted, and um, completely orderly transition, and a, still a thriving organization, and she's brought her own viewpoint to it, um, you know, and, and a, a real success story in terms of transition planning. Right. Paul. A couple things. One, it strikes me that discussing succession planning kind of opens, in my mind, the question of 
as a field how we do with human resource development. I mean, okay. it, I mean it's, it's, it just strikes me that, I mean, I was you know, reviewing our budget. We, we spent almost 70% of our, of our budget on personnel. Yeah, that's I mean, pretty typical. And that's an enormous investment. It's an enormous investment. And, and at the same time, I think sometimes, and this is, I think this goes for a lot of institutions, human resource stuff, staff development stuff, is very much catch as catch can. Yeah. And so apart from just having a succession plan, this, this notion of, I think you said that you know, your strategic plan often is very, pro, it's very program driven. Um, but there's often not a lot in there about the seventy percent of your budget, where you know what it's going into, and, and, and I just wonder: is that something you see coming out of all the stuff you've done? And is 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 that a separate issue, or is it the same issue? I think it's the same, Joan. The first white paper we did, which precedes this one, but it's also on our website. We started with all those issues, and frankly. working in a good institution in town is better than most nominating committees because <laughs> yeah. most nominating committees are she's willing um, <laughs> I mean, the real warm body <laughs> succession planning um, and I see this when I go I don't do succession planning except in this context um, because nobody does it um, <laughs> I, I do strategic planning and when I'm talking to an executive director about their strategic planning committee the first thing I say is Who's your next board leader? That's why I want to have chair your succession, your strategic planning process, because we need the person who's going to be running the organization through it to buy into it. But they never have that answer. Never have that answer. Um, and I'll say, well, you know, the vice president. It's it's like this is 
the first time they've had the opportunity to say out loud to someone, you know, the vice president's pretty weak. And I mean, they know it. Everybody on the board knows it. But no one ever says it out loud and says, what are we going to do about it? Um, and, and I think that the nominating committee absolutely, I mean, it's why they say that the nominating committee becomes the governance committee and it's the most important committee of the board. And it's absolutely true. We all say it. Do we believe it? Do we put the best people on the board on the nominating committee? Um, and I think far too often nominating committees really are focused on the now, filling, filling those vacant seats when I think their best job is focusing on the future. And apportioning those seats to specific kind of constituencies sometimes too. Sometimes, if that works. And, and I think it goes back to Marilyn's point about needing to know where your organization is on that spectrum of development. Uh, that's a, an important piece of information, which once knowing it, you may decide to leave it aside. But on the other hand, organizations aren't bugs in amber. They are dynamic and changing. We know that. And, but I think a lot of boards, a lot of nominating committees may not be as aware as we are as staff people that the needs of an organization do change over time. And I think a lot of organizations are content to, to follow the succession, the so-called succession plan of, for boards that's in their bylaws. You know, president, vice president moves up, blah, blah, blah. And that's not always the most healthy. Um, may work sometimes, may not work in other times. I think there's got to be some sort of a flexibility there, and that's dependent upon having an ongoing conversation, being in touch with taking the temperature of the organization all the time. Hence the importance, I think, of retreats or at least getting together in some kind of structured conversations regularly about the, the needs of the organization both at the board level and I would argue at the staff level too. And here's heresy, having non-board members on the nominating you know, tell a story that will make Kate laugh. I worked with a board where the not chairman of the nominating committee said, I have, this is a true story, she will bear me out. I have been chairman of this nominating committee for 25 years. And he turned to the youngest person in the room, who was not a young person, but who was the youngest person in the room, <laughs> who was a teacher in the local school system, obviously a good board member, not necessarily the person who's going to get you a lot of wealthy board members and said, and 17 years ago I recruited him so we could re recruit some young people in town. Um, yeah, now those are, those are the bad examples, but the, many organizations don't go very far from that, right? I've, I've worked with organizations where, two I've worked with two organizations, I couldn't talk them out of it. All of the ex-presidents served on the Strategic Planning Committee. <laughs> Massachusetts Council for the Social Studies is run by the ex-presidents. I may have changed. Talk about institutional memory going awry. Could, I mean, r running the risk of going awry. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was vice president. I didn't get elected president. And I was like, bye, see ya. Was the ex-president ran that organization for years, and these other two organizations as well. Lots of continuity. Not, I mean, they're never going to hire somebody a shake-up artist. I've been through one of their one of the transitions with one of those organizations. They hired the most conservative choice you could imagine. Their next CEO. 
Okay, now that I've made you laugh. Actually, Nima is an interesting case study because there, thank you very much for your kind words. I'm not sure that I deserve all of them, but um, there was, uh, that was part conscious decision, part unconscious and serendipitous that it that it's, uh, seems to have worked out as well as it has. But, um, but to follow up on your comment and also the comment about a board playing it safe, um, boards take their cues from the executive directors. And so if the executives, direct, you know, you're talking, it's interesting because you were talking about um, growing, developing your staff. And, and Nima, I think, for various reasons, had um, a lot of staff turnover for many years. And we, one of the things we did, we grew, we grew to a point, uh, financially, we were able to improve benefits, improve salaries. Um, we now offer health insurance. And we've really gotten stability on the staff now in our key people. But I'm very conscious of the fact that we don't have um, Gen X or Gen Y perspectives directly on our staff. And um, make sure the staff knows their jobs are safe, by the way. But, it, but it, you know, if you, have a, if you have a leader who is not afraid of change and not afraid of bringing in new perspectives, I think that probably sends a powerful signal to the board. But you have that representation on your board, the, the Gen X and younger? No. No. So you're all kind of 50... Ish. Volunteer leadership. You're getting a, a volunteer right. leadership. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Do you want Manning? Do you have Gen Xers on your board? Mm -hmm. Not a lot. I mean, we've got pretty much the boomer board. The, yep, the white male boomer board. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I mean, our board development committee really uh, does take its time. And I lead, and I really push as much as I can and, and try and lead them along through a process of looking at um, skilled, uh, skills around the table, you know, taking that inventory of, of our skills and talents around the board table currently, and how we might need to grow different, times of, different types of complementary skills or bring different types of complementary skills to the table to meet our strategic plan, for one thing, and these projects that we're doing, which are part of our plan, um, it seems to me that the plan becomes the driver of the skills and talents and representation you need to have on the board. So that takes the conversation away from the warm body. Who's, who's a warm body to what kinds of skills do we need to meet our plan and think about the future and look at it from a totally different perspective, which I think works, actually. It forces the organization to get out of that kind of comfortable circle of people that they call on for their board talent. So, other thoughts? Yeah. I'm not in the museum field, but I've been a, um, an executive in a small business. I've been on the board of three nonprofits. I've never been asked to evaluate the CEO of the organization. Never ever, it's never come up. I would think that any board willing to do that would be well on the way to figuring out the other things. 
I have been on several boards where I have raised the question of evaluating the CEO. I don't mean in a bad way. I know, I know, I know, no. And, and in both cases, they've been on successful CEOs. Because I, when I, I, I had Kate's job to directors before Kate, she's not my successor, there's someone between us. And our board president was adamant that I was going to be evaluated. Adamant. And it was a wonderful experience. My next job I had a very good evaluation and I firmly believed that it was the a right, not a necessity, not a duty, it's the right of, a, of anybody to be told how they're doing on their job. And every time I have brought it up in a, on a board, um, I've had a hard time. And I think it's because that, that's considered by many to be a negative activity yeah, rather than a positive activity. It's, it's number two on this first page. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so if the board can't really talk about its leadership issues in the context of the annual evaluation, it's probably a pretty good bet they're not able to talk about it in other types of contexts. Yeah, It'd be a, it, yeah we have to put that as like the first step. You know, we have to get the, we, you're right by, by pointing this out and yeah, using, we, we need to start with this checklist as opposed to, <laughs> we thought we were in. starting pretty far down, the, you know, pretty early in the road, but you're absolutely right, we have to start even earlier. Um, and um, lots of the, the two circumstances where I've been done it, one was we don't have money to give her a good raise, and if we give her a good review, she'll just oh, well, you know what? She knows she's not getting a good raise. She's doing the budget herself. You know, this isn't going to be a surprise. And if we can't give her a good raise, at least we can tell her she's doing a good job. And the other case, um, uh, they were just they thought it would be insulting. It was more of an academic model. It was the State Humanities Council, and they were operating on the academic model, and nobody ever evaluates, gives an annual performance review for, to a professor. So we wouldn't give an annual performance review to a CEO. Wouldn't we put performance review in place that because the two prior board chairs to me were both Navy admirals. Oh, 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 yeah, <laughs> yeah. used to doing that in the military, and that performance plan, and it's, it's worked very well for us. but. You know, those ex-Navy admirals, where are our performance plans for everybody? Right, So you, had, you didn't just have reviews, you had plans? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, this is more of a comment than anything. Maybe mm -hmm. it's happened, but I didn't hear too much of it in the session. That's not a criticism. But I guess my concern is, certainly with the, the CEO level, I mean, I think that's a big concern for every organization. But as you said, introducing the, the topic some of our uh, organizations are suffering up to 100% turnover, it's certainly in small institutions, but even in, I guess where I'm from, a, a mid-sized institution, the whole, the whole management team is all gone in seven or eight years. So that, I guess it's, it's something I guess I would like, and maybe I'm sure ASLH has already think about this, but to me, the succession planning is, is much broader than, than the CEO issue. Um, oh, definitely. You know, it's, definitely. And I, I don't know that I, as I look around, I've been away from the field for a long time. I come back and I see a lot of, a lot of my friends from 20 years ago. Um, I don't know, I, I worry about the numbers of people in the field who actually take the place of, of the people retiring. And, and um, it 
seems like there's a, an awful lot of critical issues there uh, above even the upper management. Well, certainly the articles that have come out in the last few years uh, about the entire nonprofit sector and the retirement wave that's anticipated certainly uh, paint a very a relatively dire picture, maybe a very dire picture in terms of just the sheer numbers of folks. Um, and this is a conversation that actually we've had at the Museum Association of New York board meeting. It's come up also in, in our focus groups. I think it's still unclear what we're dealing with in our part of the sector. Um, our polling tells us we're going we're to see some big retirements. Um, but we also hear that wages and benefits being what they are, that there are directors who cannot afford to retire and will be on the job, if not in their current institution, in some institution, for many years to come. There's also um, the issue of uh, directors who may choose to retire and partially retire and pull back to a, a part-time position at their current institution or some other institution. And then there's this notion of, of, of a cadre of interim directors um, made up of, of retirement, uh, retiring directors. So I think it is kind of unclear, you know, what the big impact is going to be until we actually get there. And we've talked with directors uh, who, who have said, you know, I'm not going to worry about this. <laughs> my organization will deal with my leaving when the time comes. And that's that. And, and I've actually decided, I'm, I'm a contrarian on this. I'm going to go public with this. I'm a contrarian on this. <laughs> Which is that, you know what, our generation got no leadership training. Let's face I mean, I actually went to business school. But in general, our generation got no leadership training. You know, I went to Cooperstown. I was never taught how to budget. No one's ever taught me how to do a performance review. Nobody's ever taught me. Never, no, I, until I got to business school, nobody ever taught me any of those things. And we've done pretty okay as, as this generation of leaders. I think that the, what I'm more, and I think that the next generation of leaders is going to do just fine. I don't think that they need um, some wholesale training and leadership. They'll figure it out. They've got natural leadership skills. Um, they've got good experience. They've got curiosity. It'll work out. There are a lot of resources out there. They learn differently than we do anyway. But what I'm worried about is, is what I'm reading in the other surveys, which is that they don't have any interest in being CEOs because of the fundraising. And um, and that's a far deeper challenge than a staff training problem. That really goes to the heart of the way the business structure of our institutions, well, and as Joan said, what they take out. Right, the fundraising and the hours and the demands from board and from staff. Um, but these are just lousy jobs. Yeah. And they finally figured out that they're lousy jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I sit here uh, just as a learning experience in my institution of the five of us in management, four of them are over 60, and then there's me. And so as I sit and listen to all this, they always show up, well, when you're, you know, shut off the lights when we're all gone, and you know, have a good time when we're all gone. And I start to, it's a very sobering to me to think that everyone I work with is uh, going to be gone. So I, I am I'm quite interested in the topic. 
And you know, it's not, I think there are some directors we spoke with who it's, it's very much about them. You know, my retirement, what I'm going to do. But you know, bottom line here, it's about the health of, this, of the institution. Yeah, Joe? The emergency. emergency. Um, people were very cautious. Um, they, they said, I don't want to go back and raise that. I, I'd like Ada to come and raise that and say, or I'd like Niska, the New York State Council of the Arts, to say, you need to have that. But they didn't want to say that for fear that someone would think they had a dread disease or, you know, that they were planning to jump ship. They, they just, they did not want to be the instigator of that. Yes. I think what we need to do, and this really uh, echoes a lot of what we've been hearing, but to have a different mindset about what succession planning is. It's really an evolutionary process. Uh, it's, it's sustainability. Uh, and to look at that, which includes mid-career development, uh, it includes uh, you know, emergency uh, situations and includes the retirement situation includes you know we who will be phasing out we're we'll be phasing out in a very different way than our predecessors phased out. True. And, and I think it's really a whole mindset and there isn't one uh, you know pattern that's going to fit every institution either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well maybe Joan if we if we, you know, made an emergency succession plan a requirement of accreditation, you know, the way they make a disaster plan a requirement of accreditation or a personnel plan a requirement of, you know, that... Then you just do it because you have to. Then you would just do it. And, and it I, takes the burden off. And we did it at Manny. We used the template, the compass point template, and actually had to <laughs> we really had to pare it down because there is no bench, and uh, it's right. it's me as the employee, and so you know it's saying you're going to designate. <laughs> well, as an independent contractor, she may may not want to step into the breach. So, got the board thinking about okay, we have one employee. When that person gets hit by the bus. What do we do in the next, uh, in the next, uh, I think it was like 36 hours. We really got down to that instead of just passing off to, you know, naming a person who's going to um, take over um, the interim s slot. So it will be not, it will be not one size fits all, but kind of institution by institution. But certainly the, the emergency plan gets people thinking and comfortable. Yeah, Marilyn. I, I think your situation with one employee at this conference, maybe not in this room, but this conference, may be more typical than big institutions. And I would say museums, most museums are small, especially history museums, and most historic houses, uh, which are the majority of the museums, have one employee of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the whole concept that succession planning means you have a bench like in a corporation and you, you're training mm -hmm. someone right, to be does not apply to generally to the field. And you are talking about planning uh, for something else or uh, doing a search or bringing in someone new or you know whatever it is. Um, so I think your situation is fairly typical. Uh, 
I know what I used to do uh, when I was a museum director is just take all my vacation at once in July and be out for a month. And if you're out, you know, a week or two, they kind of save things for you because you're going to be back. But if you, if you go away for a month every year, they have to step in, someone has to be in charge, and they have to take care of things, especially the first week, because they're not going to get taken care of for three weeks. And so, you know, there are ways that really don't cost anything to see that people are used to stepping in and handling things and making decisions, and, you know, it makes people grow. Uh, well, this notion of shadowing, I think. Yeah, and I was, I was telling Ann that I had a student, hey, it's a student at the Holocaust Museum. It's the other end of the spectrum from Manny. I mean, obviously, they have a lot of resources. And this is a, a young man who, he's in the education department, and he's clearly been tagged as a comer. He's you know, male, of course. You know, and, he's male, of course. <laughs> and, um, he, uh, and, and he keeps complaining to me. I mean, now they want me to work on an exhibition. You know, now they want me to work two days a week in the marketing department. Now they want me to say, you don't understand what's happening. You're actually like the only museum professional in America that is getting the management training exposure. Um, and, and it is so atypical in this field that he thinks he's being imposed upon. You know, go to AT&T. That's how they develop talent. They rotate them around their institutions. Um, so I actually have had a, a dream. Um, I think I may have even shared it with Kate at one point, because I think this is a, to, to do that rotating with a cadre of young comers in smaller institutions, kind of like many, many um, towns have lead Boston, there's one in Boston, lead Boston, where a group of up-and-coming young executives meet together as a group and learn about the city and learn about leadership and get connected and things like that. And if, it's a small, if you're in a small institution where you really don't have that capacity to do it yourself, can't you create a cadre of four or five or six or seven people who are peers, and it, and it also reduces the isolation of the younger professionals, who may in fact be the only, like you, the only young, younger executive in their institution. Um, and I'm not that young. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and I think that that would be, that, that would be un that's the kind of creative thinking that we need in order to give people broader exposure. And that came up, Joan, didn't it, in one of the focus groups about... One of the trustee That's right. Um, trading jobs yeah, for short term so that people could cross-train, yeah. which is an interesting solution. But... Um, Trustees were thinking about that. Thought well, because they be come a, from industry where they do stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. 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 Just as a follow-up to cross-training, team management yeah. uh, it is a very crucial to a lot of decisions. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, the notion of having co um, co chairman of committees so that it doesn't fall on one person. And, you know, and my teaming staff base, and that is essentially at the core of our succession yeah. plan. Yeah. Training. Yeah. Training. One of the things in this readiness checklist, the top management cohort is a high-performing team. Um, yeah. And that's a um, the wisdom of teams is a great book. If you haven't, if you're not familiar with that that book by. Katzenbach and Smith, 
It's been out for a, a, quite a long time, but they talk about high-performing teams, and I often think, can boards be high-performing teams? But that's a subject of another, <laughs> a whole it's other. the topic of another book. Can boards be high-performing no, teams? high-performing organizations. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, anything else? Well, thank you all. We really appreciate your your insight into this topic. Obviously, it's gonna it's gonna go on. The conversation is gonna go on. Expect to hear more from ASLH. Expect to hear more from the Museum Association of New York. Um, we. We think it's a fascinating topic, multifaceted, very nuanced, um, and lots of people have lots to say about it. So uh, thanks for coming, and stay tuned. <laughs>